Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Harold Innes, the great historian at the University of Toronto, is known for his ponderous tomes on the fur trade, the cod fisheries, minerals and mining, and pulp and paper. But there's another angle to Innes that people overlook, and that is his deep interest in individuals and for biography. William Buxton is my guest today. By day, he's a professor emeritus of communication studies at Concordia University. But when he's not teaching, he's a passionate reader of Innes and has dedicated many studies to those works. His most recent book is Harold Dennis on Peter Pond, Biography, Cultural Memory, and the Continental Fur Trade. It is published by McGill Queen's University Press. William Buxton, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be on your podcast, and I'm grateful for the invitation. So you're the witness to yesterday in this podcast. Tell me what happened during the 1927 Diamond Jubilee. Basically, they were celebrating Canada's development since the 1867 North America Act, which gave Canada, I suppose, identity as a country. It's Confederation, yes. Confederation, exactly. And so in conjunction with this, there were a number of things organized across the country. Celebrations, um, you had parades, you had plays, you had special readings, and you also had a lot of publications coming out. And among the publications were those that were celebrating people like Alexander Mackenzie and David Thompson. Uh, there's a whole string of them. Well, Linus looked at this and he said, well, that's fine, but you've forgotten somebody very important, namely Peter Pond. And in fact, Mackenzie had been a detractor of Pond, so there's a bit of revenge going on here. They didn't say, well, Mackenzie didn't get it right. I'm going to really put Pond on the map with my biographical work. And basically, that's uh, why he became interested in presenting a paper. So the Diamond, the Diamond Jubilee sparked an interest in Innes's mind. It did, it did, because it was very much about cultural memory. And he thought that cultural memory was faulty if it just celebrated certain figures and missed others. And also if it was based on, I guess, a constitutional development of Canada rather than a development of Canada based on what Innes thought was important, which is namely its infrastructure the fur trade, staples industry. So we wanted to bring it out in the foreground as well. Okay, well, let's unpack all this. I want, I want to talk to you about Innes. I want to talk about Peter Pond. And I want to talk about you. Let's start with a quick refresher on Harold Innes. He was born in a Baptist family in 1894 near Otterville, Ontario, which is about uh, an hour's drive west of Hamilton. He was raised on a, a dairy farm, a family farm. He attended McMaster University, which was a, a Baptist university uh, in Toronto at that time. He graduated. He then enlisted in the Canadian Army and was sent to France. He fought at Vimy Ridge in 1917 and was wounded. You say in your introduction that his war experience may have opened his mind to biography. How do you think this happened? Well, I think because he became very aware of the fate of the soldier and particularly the life of the soldier. And in fact, he wrote his thesis, he wrote a master's thesis on this for McMaster University. It was on the return soldier and what they were going through coming back to the country, because this was a speaker's own experience. Also, I think it was because of the circumstances in which he enlisted. He was part of a whole group of McMaster students that went together. They, they 
enlisted on mass, as it were. Yes. They went over and they all served together as well. So he had very close personal ties with the people with whom he was fighting during the war and then after the war. In fact, he was a bit of a correspondent. In fact, there was a McMaster column in which Ennis would write, and he really updated what was happening to all the other soldiers at this time, which is kind of an interesting thing that people really haven't realized. Well, it's a, it's a, you, you're describing an Innis here that we just don't know. I, I mean, I suffered Innis. Yeah, well. <laughs> I read, I read the fur trade and, 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 you know, everything about the cod fishery and, and all that stuff. Um, let's get back to Innis for a second. So he, he comes back, uh, as you say, he, he returns to McMaster. He does his, his, uh, his master's degree. Then he goes to the actually, University of Chicago. He actually did the master's degree and he was in London. He was convalescing oh. in the hospital, and he did it there. And then he came back, uh, you know, to McMaster. I think he took his degree in a ceremony. Oh, but he wrote it. All, he wrote it abroad. When he was in London, he goes to the University of Chicago. He gets a PhD uh, with a dissertation on the CPR. So he's moving away from biography. He's already teaching at the University of Toronto at that point, and his book of the on the CPR will be published. And then his mind turns to the fur trade. Actually, he um, finished the dissertation, then went to the University of Toronto. He wasn't teaching at that time. He went there in 1920, but he just finished and he was able to get a job at the University of Toronto. This was 1920. His work on the fur trade, is this when he encounters Peter Pond? I would have to say so, yes. I mean, he started off, as you said, studying the CPR and the history of it. And I think as part of it, he was looking at the CPR in terms of Canadian economic history. And part of that was examining the drainage basins of Canada that he thought was really important to Canadian development. He saw these as sub-civilizations developing around drainage basins. And then one of these was the Mackenzie River <clears throat> drainage basin. And he became aware, I think, the, that Pond had a fort near what is today Fort McMurray. I think that kind of got things going with him and thought, well, maybe I'll have to turn to this more. Well, let's talk about Peter Pond. Who who was Peter Pond? Who was Peter Pond? I, I think a very intriguing character and uh, a very controversial figure, one might add. He was actually American-born, but at that time, of course, the United States uh, did not have independence. He was born in 1740 in Milford, Connecticut. He grew up there and uh, became kind of a soldier at first and uh, served, I think, uh, with the British forces. Yes. And then after that, he got involved in the in the fur trade, I think through his father, who had gone to Detroit and followed his path to go to Toronto. For the benefit of our listeners, I mean, uh, I think it's important to point out that uh, Peter Pond fought with the British Army, the American British Army, in the uh, French Indian War, as they say in the United States, but we call it the Seven Years' War. We have a lot of listeners in the U.S., so I want to make sure I, I, uh, I make the distinction. He was in Montreal when the French surrendered in 1760. So he's very much an active part of that army, but he will not join the Continental Army during the War of Revolution. No, no, that's true. He left before that happened. And so where is he going? Uh, well, he went up to the Northwest because he, he'd been working in the fur trade in uh, around the Great Lakes area, in various parts of it. And it seemed like he was hearing a lot of stories about things being much better in the Great Northwest, north of the Great Lakes. So what happened was that he organized basically to, to leave and go up there and set up. 
and to begin operating in the fur trade within what wasn't called Canada at that time, but the, the great Northwest. And so he basically load up some canoes and headed off there and then, and then settled and then began operating the fur trade there. He's an extraordinary fur trader. Well, what's interesting about him was that he was kind of exemplary, I suppose, as someone who knew how to organize and get done. He was very practical. Um, and he was very, he had very good interpersonal skills, apparently. I mean, he was very, he was a very kind of large, intimidating figure. William, this guy murdered how many people? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're saying he's a nice guy. This guy is violent. Well, uh, he, he was, he didn't, he wasn't really convicted of anything, but he <laughs> alleged that he was part of the death of two other people. Okay. But actually, there's one that was recorded. He, he, he killed someone in a duel, apparently. Yes, he did. Yes. He's a violent man. The other two are more controversial. Yes. But it seemed like at least people in his entourage were involved in these. But he was never really convicted of anything, and they never found any evidence. But it always made him a very controversial character, and that's why perhaps one of the reasons he was neglected, because he had this reputation. Mm. Mackenzie, in fact, fed into with some of his, his writing. Well, you're raising an interesting point here, because in his travels in what we today would call northern Saskatchewan, northern Alberta, and all the way up to the Northwest Territories, yeah. uh, he encounters people like like Joseph Frobisher, he, people like Simon McTavish, Alexander McKenzie, you mentioned already. These guys are, again, big fur traders. Well, he was um, involved in, you could call it, uh, precursors to the Northwest Company. There are a number of them. They went out to the West, as you mentioned, Frobisher and the Frobisher brothers were out there. And uh, Alexander McKenzie came a bit later. But basically, there was a group of them uh, on the Saskatchewan, in Saskatchewan. And he, uh, he eventually moved there to a fort near, uh, near Prince Albert and basically helped to organize an expedition up to the Great Northwest. And so what they did was they pooled their resources and they sent Pond because they thought Pond was the most competent to undertake this expedition. So they pooled their resources, these various traders, and they're becoming to get organized. They said it made no sense to compete against one another. It's better if we all work together. And so they, they knew of what was happening in the Great Northwest. So they sent Pond to organize an expedition to the Great Northwest, which involved going across what was called the Methi Portage, which is in, now it's located I think again near Waterways, Fort McMurray, and uh, basically the Methi Portage is a height of land that separates the Hudson Bay drainage system from the Mackenzie River drainage system. So there's a height of land that separates the two. So what that means then, if you can get across and get into the other one, then you can link the two drainage basin in terms of their fur trade activities. So. Um, Having gone there, that meant that it opened up the great, North, the great Northwest to them. Prior to that, the natives there were trading with the Hudson Bay Company on Hudson Bay, which meant going to Hudson Bay basically through intermediaries and then trading there. Northwest Company operated differently. They set up their forts and they said, come to us. Don't go to the Hudson Bay Company. Come to us. So what they did was they set up then a string of forts going up uh, into the great Northwest there. And the, they were very lucrative. He brought back so many furs, he had to put them in a cache somewhere because it was so bountiful. He's that good. It was so bountiful, and he was that good 
uh, in organizing, as you say, in organizing the, the, the transportation and the trapping and transportation. Obviously, he's working through indigenous intermediaries. There's a whole supply line there that's created by his abilities again. He will be one of the founders, one of the, the I think he has one share in the Northwest Company. He did, he did initially. He had a share, and then he was um, he was kind of marginalized um, in the later years, and eventually left. But he did have a, originally shares in the Northwest Company. That's true. Peter Pond will die in eighteen oh seven. Have I got that right? Eighteen oh seven. Well, it's a bit controversial, but they just estimate it was around that time. Yeah, he's a poor man. Well, that's been controversial. Um, the story was that he was poor, but then I think one of his descendants said, well, actually I heard stories about that he was a kind of a dandy and, and dressed pretty well and did not have the kind of poverty that people have generally suggested he had, but rather was, lived in rather comfortable means. He had a good relationship with the president of Yale, in fact, and um, donated stuff to the Yale Museum that he'd collected, like bot botanical exhibits and what, what did he call it? Uh, things from paleontography that um, they've disappeared. I said, what happened to these things? They don't know, but he basically, these are, this is the early Yale Natural History Museum. So he, he was moving in these kind of circles as well. So he was not quite as rough hewn as some people have suggested. Let's move back to Innes then. So Innes in 1927 says, there's a big part of the story here missing in this pantheon of Canadian heroes being celebrated on the diamond anniversary of Confederation. And he proposes Peter Pond. What, what's the link then between this quiet Harold Innes and this swashbuckling Peter Pond? <laughs> what does Innes see here? Well, I think he was a kind of alter ego in the sense that he, he liked to think of himself as kind of a, maybe Schwarzbuckling in a minor sense, because after all, he himself did all sorts of dirt research where he went up to the north, he went in canoes and worked, worked, on, uh, works on, worked on boats going, plying the Mackenzie River. And he saw himself as being, you know, somebody who was really on the spot and he loved meeting people that were workers and talking to them. And so um, he really prided himself on actually going up to the north through four different routes up to Northern Canada, you know, via Alaska, via Mackenzie River, via Western Hudson Bay, via Labrador and Newfoundland. And then he also, uh, later on, he ended up in Siberia and was uh, doing research there when he attended a, a scientific meeting in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, made a point of going up to Siberia and um, talking to people there and then learning about um, the fur trade in Siberia, for instance. So uh, enormous curiosity, but also saw himself as being, a, because he grew up on a farm, you know, and he uh, he was very knowledgeable about, about the outdoors and about plant life and about animal life, very observant. I mean, he, he would, in his diaries, he would describe in detail the kinds of furs that were growing, how they were growing, what the uh, mineral composition was. So um, he, he was always um, very interested in on hand, hands-on research rather than just library research or archival research, which he also did. So what does Innes tell us about Peter Pond? I think his overarching message was that uh, Peter Pond has been given a raw deal, that in fact he should be resurrected, that he in fact made enormous contributions and should have been recognized. But I think he was a bit despondent because he felt that um, when he was writing this biography that in fact it seemed like it was something that maybe had not caught on the way he wanted it to. And he was a bit disappointed, I think, 
in the fact that he maybe had not been successful enough in making his point. Well, do you think it's because Peter Pan was American? Do you think that might have prejudiced Canadians? Um, it could have been. It could have been. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't bother Ennis particularly, I think. But um, but he felt that he was some somebody who'd been left out of, of Canadian history and, and should have received his rightful place. So how did Innes write this biography? Did he look at particular kinds of documentations? What gave, in your mind, uh, Innes some originality in his approach? Well, what was interesting about it, it's not simply a biography. It's a kind of combination, autobiography, biography, secondary source. I mean, work had been done before. I mean, I talk about this in the book, but basically this manuscript was discovered that was Peter Pond's memoir diary by one of his descendants because it was going to go into the fire in Connecticut. They were cleaning out, cleaning out the kitchen. They found this thing and, and she became quite intrigued by it. And then she had it published in, in Connecticut just as a kind of popular entertaining piece about a very romantic account of the, what it was like. And she had it transcribed. And then it was picked up more seriously by a publisher in, um, I think it was in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Historical Society, also produced a version of it. So Innes had these to work with. But what he basically did was he took these, and this was his memoir, and it ended in 1775. And what Innes did was he folded the memoir into a broader biography. So basically he took the memoir and then interspersed it with commentary and a few notes. And then after 1775, he relied on other sources for bringing it up to date. So he did, he dealt with what he had, which, which wasn't excessive, but enough material to fill out kind of a biography that was then published in uh, 1930. Now, your book examines Innes looking at Peter Pond, but you're saying that there's an added element here, which is cultural memory. What, what do you mean by this? Well, it was a cultural memory in the sense of uh, going back to our discussion of the Diamond Jubilee. It, it was really an exercise in constructing cultural memory and particularly configuring time and space in a particular way to give Canadians a sense of identity about themselves. I mean, as Mackenzie King famously said, the problem with Canada has it has uh, way too much space Geography. and not enough history, not enough history of the white man, of course, in Canada. So basically it was, it was constructing that in the sense of saying, well, who we are as Canadians in terms of our historical development and also in terms of the the space of the land. And so I basically, he was involved in this project that was, that was going on and intervening in this project. And what's interesting was that a lot of historians were involved in this. They were really uh, almost mobilized by the government to take part in these efforts. So a lot of histories were written around that time. And then people like his colleague Wallace, for instance, um, who was the, also the librarian of the University of Toronto, were very involved in this effort to then reconstruct what Canada's history was and then celebrate it actually. It was a good year because the depression hadn't hit yet, didn't happen for two years. So actually things were going pretty well there. And they just actually received um, around this time, you know, formal autonomy as a, as a country as well. It's interesting that he, that, that uh, a good Canadian nationalist like Innes, uh, who has studied in Chicago, 
turns to an American and says, uh, "This American is this American's contribution to developing Canada has been underestimated, and I want to make I want to make a contribution to cultural memory by by writing about him." Well, it's interesting because um, I guess strictly speaking, he wasn't an American because there was there was no United States at the time when he was born or when he left. Actually, it was uh, a member of the I guess. Uh, members of the British colonial class. You're quite right. You're quite right. I stand corrected. But by the time, by the time Innes is writing, I mean, the Connecticut is very much American territory and, 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 uh, Pond will return. I mean, he, he will return to Connecticut uh, in the 1780s and, and will live out his days there. Right. He did. That's correct. Is there anything in Innes? Well, you know, one of the great aspects of cultural memory, I think is often underestimated also is map making. And Peter Pond was an extraordinary map maker, wasn't he? Well, he was not in terms of, I suppose, uh, being sophisticated in terms of cartography, because he, he really had, had no training, unlike Thompson, for instance, who was very excellent as a, as a map maker. But in terms of, I suppose, his ability to translate his observations into uh, pictorial representations of this. So he did... Many of his early maps then became prototypes for, for later mapping because he he got a sense of what the layout was and got things, you know, fairly wrong on some occasions. But at the same time, it made a normal contribution. I mean, his I think his main error was to come to the conclusion that the Mackenzie River actually flowed into the Pacific Ocean, which meant that it could be a route to the, the Far East. And... Um, he was claiming this. I mean, he did it on the maps, basically. And it, it took Mackenzie to actually say, well, let's see if this actually works. <laughs> and of course, it took the, what we know as the Mackenzie River and realized that it went north rather than west and it ended up in its mouth and, and came back and said, well, this is the way it actually is. And he, he was quite wrong there. But he had the first part right. You know, <laughs> it was a big river. Mackenzie River sounds better than Pond River, though, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Well, that, that's, people <laughs> that's, say, yeah, it should have been Pond River. <laughs> but basically what happened was that they were they were at his fort together because uh Mackenzie came to relieve him. Um because he you know because they were they were having a I guess a shift in personnel and then they spent some time together, I think during a, during winter, where basically Tonzin regale him with these stories and tales about the um, the landscape. And then Mackenzie took it to heart and said, Well, I'll give this a try and see where it leads. Was was this the only biography that Harold Innes wrote? Uh, no, no. He um, he did a number of others. He wrote one of Andrew McPhail, who was a leader of the Western Cooperative Grain Movement. Um, he did one on uh, a man named Simeon Perkins, who was a merchant yes. in Halifax, published by your Champlain Society, in fact. Thank you for pointing it out. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And then he did, he did a number of shorter ones because he contributed a number of articles to the Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences on people involved in the railway industry in Canada, some of the leading figures, mostly the elites and, and what they were doing. He wrote numerous obituaries as well. He wrote reviews of biographies. He wrote one of Keynes, for instance, a review of a book on Keynes. So he's very interested in biography himself. And the Pond work was just one aspect of it. What's interesting, though, is that people don't realize that there was a sustained interest in Pond, and it was really an emergent work. It went over 20 years, in fact, and he wrote a number yes. of different things. 
because he did a paper the Royal Society, and then he did a major book and a few other short pieces. And then it seemed like he was getting more information in the 1930s, and he did a kind of uh, summary of the newer material that had come out. Particularly, he was in contact with one of uh, Pond's descendants, and they had a correspondence, which is in the book, with uh, her name was um, uh, Florence Cannon. And they corresponded. She'd come across the book and really liked it. And then they went back and forth a bit. And she filled in a few things that the Innes didn't know about Pond. And so it was really a work in progress. And then finally, in 1947, there was a book uh, which was about a book published in Switzerland, which was about the, the great explorers. And, uh, and he wrote short articles in, that were translated into French on Pond and Thompson and Mackenzie, in fact. So that was 1947. And so, so this is an emergent work. It was a work in progress, in other words, which is typical of Innes because he, he, couldn't, he was constrained by the, the written press, so he was always rewriting things. At the first yes. rate in Canada, in fact, he wrote a lot of marginal notes in the first edition, and then his wife incorporated these into a later edition. So the last part is really another layer of it. He did that also, Empire and Communications and the Cod Fisheries, where he wrote in the margins, and then these, these books were republished, where Mary Quill Innes then took upon herself to translate these all into new notes. So what's interesting about Innes said, so it was always a work in progress, it was always emergent, and things weren't fixed. And he, he, that's why he didn't really like the written press so much, because it was constraining to him. He's really a fan of orality, because orality is more dialogical, and you can go back and forth, but he didn't like the fixity of, I think, of printed works. Uh, I'll open a parenthesis simply to say that we did a podcast on Mary Quailinus uh, a few months ago, and uh, for our listeners uh, who might be interested in this, William Buxton, let's talk about you for, for a few minutes. Um, this is your fifth book on Innes. You do research on American philanthropy and culture and communications. Uh, what is it about... Innes that still captivates you? I think because it's still a largely unknown Innes because uh, he wrote an enormous amount, but mostly people have just paid attention to his major tomes and the ones that you've mentioned, and then not even the major tomes, but just the conclusions because he was very dense in terms of what he wrote, as you, as you, as you have attested from your own experience. But... Um, there's a lot buried in there that don't, isn't understood. And so I think there's a need to read in this in a different way, which is more extensive rather than intensive, looking at just small parts and then repeating them over and over again, but rather looking more at the broader range of what he was doing. And the thing is, a lot of it is just kind of um, difficult to follow. So that's why I've done so much archival work, because it starts to make more sense, because a lot of it is buried. You know, he wasn't a very systematic scholar in the sense that he paid a lot of attention to making sure that everything, all the, you know, the uh, T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. Um, he, he, it was, it tend to be very loose. So um, if you look at it more in context, then you start to realize uh, what he was really getting at by having a sense of what he said in other places, particularly in terms of letters, you get a better sense of what was really lying behind this work. But I guess I was always impressed by his great curiosity, enormous curiosity, and also his range. I mean, just being familiar with all sorts of things. And people have always said, well, he wasn't as much interested in the arts, you know, or 
uh, or aesthetics, but actually he was, particularly in terms of literature. You know, his um, his books are always interspersed with quotes from, you know, from classical sources. And he, he in the history of communication, he cites uh, a very Anisian book called The Staple of News by Ben Johnson. And he managed to dredge this up and have part of this in there. So he was always, I think, having, he was interested in how things were received. So which meant he looked at literature a lot in terms of what contemporaries were saying about something or other and worked this into his scholarship. But you have to admit, William, I mean, his work is very intimidating. And I mean, I'm going to be blunt. It's really boring. Uh Do you have any advice to our listeners on how to read Innes? Is there a trick? Do you take him in small doses? How do you how do you do it? Is there a way to read Harold Innes? How can we approach him so that he can become more attractive? I guess I beg to differ a bit in terms of readability. <laughs> of course you will. <laughs> but I think, uh, first of all, in terms of his biographical work, I don't think it's very boring at all. I think it's quite interesting. In fact, I think it's quite well done. I think you're right. I mean, I think that his this unexpected interest in biography does open a window onto the Inician work that could make him suddenly a lot more attractive. Yeah, but if I may, I mean, I can just maybe read you a part of Please. this that gives you a, a sense of the fact that, uh, you know, he could, I think he could write with a lot of verb. Um, this is from his introduction to a book written by his wife, Mary Quellinus, on Canadian economic history, written from the 1940s. There have been a whole class of people who have been forgotten. Fishermen, Indians, voyageurs, slaves, farmers, lumbermen, navvies, miners, Precambrian formation, fishing banks, commodities, beaver, iron, brandy, rum, cod, square timber, potash, placer gold, and equipment. And he continued by saying that uh, practical biography involves an interest in the continuous labor of Canadians who have shifted the scenes rather than on those who have been engaged in the unseemly rush to take the curtain call. And, and then he concludes by saying, the work is to reflect the energy, patience, and initiative of people who did the country's work. So I think this reveals a side to him. I mean, this uh, to be sure, this was in an introduction to his wife's work, but he really felt that this was behind the work, in fact, that one had to get at this. He wanted to really get at the working lives of people well, listening to what you're saying, to what you were, to the excerpt you were reading, I mean, it makes them sound very modern. Looking at those aspects that have been forgotten, we we live today in a Canada that has forgotten its history. He's writing this a long time ago. Uh, the things that he enumerates are things that we are called upon to remember. Yeah. Well, he was basically trying to put spotlight on these things that at one time were commonplace, but then have been largely forgotten: the technologies, the people, the kinds of things that were done. So there you're getting a cultural memory as well. He felt that we had a kind of impoverished cultural memory. So much of what he wanted to do was to, I suppose, uh, nurture a cultural memory of things that had been forgotten or neglected. And so maybe he went overboard and it gets kind of boring when he starts uh, going on and on page after page about aspects of the fur trade or the cod fisheries in terms of the tonnage of fishes that were there. But behind this, I think, was the genuine concern that this was really important to document. 
because he had a very strong interest in documentation and documenting. Well, and I have to say, uh, I spent quite a bit of time this summer reading his CPR, and I'm very grateful to Harold Ennis because he saved me an awful lot of research. <laughs> uh -huh. It was a fine book. It was a fine book. Thank you very much for sharing your ideas and your insights with us. Okay, thank you. Oh, I was going to say something about Champlain Society. Oh, please, yes. All right. Um, <laughs> you maybe will appreciate this, but um, Innes was getting involved in history and doing historical research. And he made a point of uh, contacting the Champlain Society about membership, but found out that he just couldn't sign up. Yes. He, had to, he just couldn't sign up because there were a reserved number of places. Yeah. <laughs> but one of his colleagues, WPM Kennedy, was resigning his membership. So Innes took over Kennedy's membership, and this would have been in the 1920s. And, um, and so he took over the membership, and then he got involved in, I think, some of the, uh, the, the projects in terms of correspondence with people working on various biographies and histories. And, um, and then um, in, the in the latter part of the, what have been the 1940s, um, you may be familiar with this, but basically the Hudson Bay Company opened up its archives for research yes. and they started to publish volumes of, uh, of work they thought was, was important. And so Innes had a student, and I mentioned him in the book, a man named uh, Harvey Fleming. Harvey Fleming became the editorial assistant to the editor of the volumes and, in fact, produced one of the volumes himself. And Innes was very closely involved in some of the early volumes of this and, and kind of reproducing what he had done with Pond. Innes was annoyed because they were giving so much attention to Sir George Simpson and the Hudson Bay Company. <laughs> he felt that this was not justified at all. And he was very cranky about this and said, why, why, why are you talking about Simpson so much? And so he was working with Fleming and... Uh, they actually were able to make the point that they ought to do something on John McLaughlin, who was a fur trader in Oregon. And the Americans, in fact, had been pushing for a long time to uh, have their share of this as well in terms of Oregon history. And so Innes worked with Fleming to basically, um, you know, resurrect John McLaughlin. And it was a kind of counterpoint to the first volume, which was all George Simpson. And then if you look at the, I think, the third and fourth volumes, there are more about Oregon and about John McLaughlin. So basically, Innes was trying to balance this somewhat and saying, well, you talk about Simpson, but you should talk about McLaughlin as well. So it was the same kind of thing with Pond and Mackenzie and Thompson, that he was trying to, I suppose, offer a different kind of history that was more balanced. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, Innes does have a long association with the Champlain Society. I have to say that the, the days when you had to be invited to join the Champlain Society are long gone. There's an open invitation to become a member of the Champlain Society all the time. Uh, but those were the days when it was very much a, a limited uh, membership subscribership. Uh, and it was a, a, a closed society, mostly based in Toronto, but of course uh, with members in, across Canada and around the world. Um, the Hudson's Bay Foundation uh, did indeed uh, fund a number of projects in the 1940s, and I'm very proud to say that it came back to the Champlain Society five years ago and again becoming, becoming a sustainer uh, of the society, and we're very grateful for their support. Thank you, William Buxton, for your help uh, with this podcast and for your great work on, um, on Peter, Harold Innes and Peter Pond. Thank you very much. 
That was William Buxton, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies at Concordia University. His book is Harold Dennis on Peter Pond, Biography, Cultural Memory, and the Continental Fur Trade. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 14, 2020, and only because of the genius of our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.